Thank you for that prayer. If I asked you uh, to use just one word to describe the traditional nativity scene, what word would you choose? It's interaction time. What? Major? Oh, major. Maybe this isn't interaction time. No, I'm just kidding. Manger. Thank you. I can't hear. Manger. What else? What other? One word. Peace. Shepherd. Posed? Posed. Smelly? Humble? What else? Divine? Those are some good words. Um, You know, uh, if I had been in your shoes and asked that question this morning, uh, I would have had shepherd's response. Shepherd, you win the prize. Um, I I think of peace. And so I thought a lot about this week. Why why is that the first word that comes to my mind? Why Why would I choose to describe the nativity scene with that word, maybe it's because of the song Silent Night, that how all is calm and all is bright. You know, even the, the last line of that song, we sing like a lullaby to Jesus, you know, wanting him to sleep in heavenly peace, sleep in heavenly peace. Or perhaps it's because of the famous interaction between the angels In the shepherds, the one in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, where the angels declared glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to all men. Now, we don't really know whether or not it was literally peaceful that night for Joseph and Mary. You had an exhausted mom, you had a stressed out dad, you had a newborn baby, you had a bunch of shepherds that kept interrupting a family as they tried to get a good night's sleep, yet there's no question that the nativity is a scene that has become synonymous with peace. Well... This Christmas, through the reading of Revelation chapter 12, we have pulled back the curtain on the peaceful nativity scene. And we've discovered that behind the scene, there was a great dragon who wanted to devour the child the moment he was born. And so there was war in the heaven. And the dragon, also called the devil or Satan, was hurled to the earth where he now makes war against the people of God. You know, ironically, Jesus was born into a period of history known as the Pax Romana. This term is Latin for Roman peace. Now, it was a time of peace 
put that in air quotes, during the Roman Empire that lasted from about 27 B.C. to 100 A.D. However, the peace of Rome was a peace that was achieved by a brutal sword. I guess you could even say that there was unity during this time, but it was not the kind of unity that you would desire. It was a a forced unity that was maintained through fear and oppression. So into this period of history, Paul writes this important letter about unity that's found in Jesus Christ, not in Rome. Therefore, it's not surprising that one of the key words in this letter is the word peace. It occurs eight times in these six chapters. And so I think it's a fitting way for us to conclude this year-long study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians by tracing the use of this word peace throughout the letter in order to emphasize the essential role that peace has in unity. See, Paul's message to the church in Ephesus is very clear. Without peace, there is no unity. Um, I, thinking about that this week, uh, it, it reminded me of um, a bumper sticker. Now, my very first car that I ever drove, it was a navy blue Chevy Citation and a two-door. It was a beauty. Uh, you, need to, you need to Google that to see what one looks like. Um, but then my second car that I uh, drove, it was a 1979 white BMW. Um, now, I mean, don't get all excited about it being a BMW. It was older, and um, uh, there was a pharmacist in, in the church uh, who sold it uh, to my dad um, for us boys to drive. And uh, so I drove uh, around town in this white BMW, and uh, I decided to get this bumper sticker. It was this really long bumper sticker that I put across the back bumper of this BMW. And here's what it said. It said, no, N-O, Jesus, no peace. And then, no, Jesus, K-N-O-W, no peace, K-N-O, peace. And so there I was as a 17-year-old boy driving around town preaching the gospel from my bumper. Um, and it made me, this, this lesson this week reminded me of that bumper because that is the message here in Ephesians. No peace, there's no unity. No peace, K-N-O-W, peace, no unity. As I've mentioned already, there are eight times uh, in these six chapters where Paul uses the word peace, and so my outline today is just a look at Paul's use of the word peace in order to talk about four different aspects of peace. I really want us to kind of wrap our, our minds and our hearts around peace. If, if, if there must be peace in order for us to have unity, and this letter is all about unity, then we really need to wrap our heads and our minds, our hearts around peace. 
And so four different aspects of peace that I want us to think about this morning. The first one is this, peace affected. Peace affected. The gospel of Jesus Christ has affected our relationship with God and with one another by making peace possible. Peace is now possible because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peace with God and peace with one another. Because of the gospel, peace is always a possibility. And that changes our relationship with everyone. Because the gospel teaches us that peace is always a possibility. You know, the first place that we find the word peace is in Paul's greeting, uh, chapter 1 and verse 2. He writes, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in all 13 of the letters written by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he begins in this same way, by offering the grace and peace of Christ to his readers. You see, grace, what Paul teaches us here, even in his greeting, is that grace and peace belong together. It's the gospel in two words. It's a simple cause and effect statement. Grace is the cause of the gospel. Peace is the effect of the gospel. So with this one short greeting, Paul shares the whole gospel. Grace and peace to you. Grace is the origin. Peace is the outcome. Grace and peace are both found only in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the grace and the peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace that brings salvation to sinners, that grace makes peace between me and God possible. Amen? That's the reality of the gospel. We know that to be true. The grace of Jesus Christ that brings salvation to sinners makes peace between me and God possible. And that same grace that brings salvation to sinners makes peace between me and you possible. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that peace is always a possibility because peace is always the outcome of the gospel. Nothing like it has been possible since the garden. Peace between me and God and peace between me and you. And so that's the first aspect of peace this morning. Peace affected because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our relationships with God and our relationships with each other have been affected because of the gospel. There's always a possibility for peace because of the grace of God. That's number one. The second aspect of peace is peace arrived. Peace arrived. Now, 
This is the aspect of peace that we celebrate at Christmas. Peace has now arrived onto the scene. The next four times that Paul uses the word peace in Ephesians is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. And uh, he actually, uh, he uses it four times in these, in these verses. It just kind of overwhelms this section. Um, and, I, and I love how uh, verse 14 begins. It begins, Paul writes, for he himself is our peace. And he himself is a, is a really good translation because the pronoun there is strongly emphatic in the Greek. Paul uh, writes this in such a way, he really wants to emphasize that pronoun. And so, he himself, there's no question about it. There's no doubt in the mind of Paul, Jesus Christ is our peace. Peace is found, as JP mentioned earlier, in the person of Jesus Christ. He is peace personified. He is peace incarnate. In Bethlehem, a little over 2,000 years ago, peace was born into a dark and difficult world. You know, for the Hebrew people, the word for peace was shalom. And shalom is a great word. Shalom is a relational word. It's actually the word for friendship. It's a word that describes a person who is in good relationship with God and in good relationships with others. It means to be in right relationships in every sphere of your life, in the home, in the church, with your neighbor, and especially with God. That's shalom. So knowing this background and the relational emphasis of the word helps us to understand even, I think, Jesus as our peace. Paul would write in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's shalom. Have a right relationship with everyone in every sphere of life. Jesus is our shalom. He came to show the world what it means to live at peace with everyone, how to be in a right relationship in every sphere of his life. And that's the second aspect of peace. Peace has arrived into our dark and difficult world. As the apostles would tell us in the New Testament, we've seen it. We've touched it. We've heard him talk. Peace. That's the second aspect I want us to think about with peace. So we have peace affected, peace arrived, Here's the third aspect this morning, peace achieved. Peace achieved. Now, this is the aspect that we celebrate at Easter. If we celebrate peace arrived at Christmas, we celebrate peace achieved at Easter. If we continue there in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 Pick back up there, he he writes, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. 
His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. I love these verses because here Paul clearly states that the purpose of the cross is twofold. The purpose of the cross is to reconcile our relationship with God. There's no question. And the purpose of the cross is to reconcile our relationship with one another. In this specific case, it's the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. You just cannot miss the language here. A cross is made up of two pieces of wood. One's vertical and the other's horizontal. And the purpose of the cross is to make peace relationally in both directions. That kind of peace was achieved on the cross. Because, you see, sin has not only separated me from God, but it has separated me from you. To use Paul's language, there are dividing walls of hostility between us that have been caused by our sin. I don't know. Can you recall a time when... um, You just felt like there was something between you and another person. Maybe it's now, and you don't have to recall a time. You may not even be be able to put a finger on what it is specifically, but you just know, you would even use that phrase, "I, I, I just feel like that there's something between us something that was not there before. In other times, we know exactly what it is between us. We could easily name it in the time and the place that it happened. Well, whether we can name it or not, Paul calls it a dividing wall of hostility. There's something between us. Caused by our sin is a dividing wall of hostility. And the purpose of the cross is not just to bring us into a right relationship with God, but to destroy the barriers between us, thus making peace. You know, I really like that Paul chose to use the word hostility in this context. It would have been really easy um, and, and generic to just call it sin, you know, the dividing wall of sin. It still would have made sense to us. But instead, he, he specifically chose this word, hostility. And I like the use of that word because when there's something between you and me, it causes me to feel hostile towards you. When I'm in your presence, I feel hostile. It was a relational word. And it's the opposite of peace. And just like the effect of grace is peace, the effect of sin is hostility. 
But through the cross, Jesus put to death the hostility. You see, in order to have peace, you've got, you've got to deal with the hostility between us caused by sin. You have to. If we're going to have unity, you got to have peace. And if you're going to have peace, you got to deal with the hostility that's between us. Otherwise, the hostility will always be there. It will remain. It will linger. Hostility between you and me does not just go away with time. We cannot sweep it under a rug. It must be dealt with. You have to remove it. You have to destroy it. You have to put it to death. And what the good news that Paul shares with us here is that on the cross, the hostility between humans and God caused by sin was put to death. Also, he put to death the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Also, he put to death the hostility between you and me. All the many ways that our sin has affected our relationships. All the ways our sin has wounded and deeply divided us. Paul tells us that Jesus put to death the hostility that divides us, I love this phrase, in his flesh. In his flesh. You see, someone personally has to take the pain. In order to put to death the hostility, someone personally has to take the pain. Someone has to take the hurt. Someone has to take the suffering for it to end. And Jesus took it in his flesh. Does this make sense to you? Because here's what happens. I've been around not that long, but I've been around long enough to know that here's what happens. Are you familiar with the game Hot Potato? It's been a while since I played Hot Potato, but I have played it. I can remember back in elementary school, you know, whether it was with a dodgeball or, uh, you know, an eraser or beanbag or, you know, the teacher, the gym teacher would pick something, uh, and, you know, you'd start the music, and you just, just kind of, you'd pass whatever this object was around, and when the music stopped, whoever ended up with the object, they're the loser, right? And so, you're just tossing this thing around. It's a hot potato, right? You, you don't want to hold on to it because you don't want to keep it when the time goes out. Well, humans don't play hot potato in real life. Instead, we play hurt potato. Hurt potato. And here's what this looks like. You do or say something to hurt me. And when that happens, when you do that, when you say those words that hurt me, or you do that something that, hurt, that hurts me, you give me the hot potato. 
the hurt potato. <laughs> I'm going to get that mix, mixed up. You give me the hurt potato. So now I'm carrying this hurt potato that you caused me, that you gave to me. And I don't want it because it hurts. And I don't want to get left with it when the time runs out. And so I want to get rid of it. I don't want to carry it around with me. And so what happens is I give it to somebody else. Or, typically, I give it back to you. So, I say or do something back to you that hurts you. And now you have the hurt potato. And what I've learned is that even in our attempts to make things right, even in our attempts to reconcile with someone, because we are imperfect and because we say things imperfectly and do things imperfectly, because we often speak out of our frustration and out of our anger and out of our sadness and our attempts to make things right with someone, even in our good attempts to make things right, we still pass the hurt potato back to the other person. And it's just a never-ending cycle. Until someone chooses to take the hurt potato and to not pass it back to the other person. See, someone has to end up with the hurt potato. And on the cross, Jesus says, give me the hurt potato. That's what he achieved on the cross. He took all the hurt, all the pain, all of the hostility caused by our sin that we just keep passing around through the years like a terrible game of hot potato. He took it in his flesh. He personally took it. And listen, the only way that we can put to death the hostility that is between us caused by our sin is to stop passing it around and to give Jesus the hot potato, the hurt potato. Paul uses uh, the word peace Again, in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 3, there he encourages the church to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, a bond is something that brings two people together and forms a connection between them. Um, It's typically formed through friendship, through shared beliefs, through common experience. A bond helps form a deep connection that allows you to to trust one another. You know, family creates strong bond. Marriage creates a strong bond. Friendship creates a strong bond. You can probably, you know, think of that one friend um, from elementary school that you still stay in contact with just due to the bond formed from that friendship. 
But here in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, Paul's not talking about those kinds of bonds. It's not the bond formed through family or marriage or friendship because he's calling Jews and Gentiles together as one. There is, listen, there is no natural bond that could bring these two groups of people together. In fact, all there is is hostility. That's all that's ever been formed between these two groups of people. The good news is there's no stronger bond to bring them together than the peace achieved on the cross by Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus achieved peace between you and me. He destroyed whatever divides us. And there's so many things that divide us, whether it's race, class, money, religion. There's so many things that divide us. And Jesus destroyed the hostility caused by those things that divide us. He achieved peace on the cross. And so there's this bond of peace available to us at the foot of the cross. And there's no stronger or deeper bond between two people than the bond of peace formed between us because of the cross. That's the third aspect of peace. Peace achieved. So peace affected, peace arrived, peace achieved, and then the fourth one, this kind of fourth aspect of peace is that peace is announced. Peace announced. That last verse back in Ephesians chapter 2, 14 through 18, tells us um, in verse 17 that uh, Jesus, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. So he came and preached peace to those who were far away, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. Now think with, with me about this for just one second. If you think about this text, Paul cannot be referring here to Jesus' public ministry because Jesus did not achieve peace until the cross. And chronologically, you cannot announce something that until it's been achieved. So, so first, Jesus achieved peace on the cross, and then he came back from the dead to announce the peace that he achieved to those who are far away and to those who are near. So here in verse 17, Paul is referring to Jesus preaching following the resurrection. After he had achieved the peace on the cross, he returns to announce the peace. Do you remember the very first word Jesus speaks to his disciples following the resurrection? John records it for us in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 22. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, they locked the doors for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and announced peace. Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed 
when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus announced, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus returned to preach peace to those who are far away and to those who are near. And then in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 15, Paul calls the church to put on the full armor of God. He tells them to stand firm with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. You know, I love that word readiness. Because what Paul's referring to here is the kind of readiness that naturally belongs to someone who has good news to share. You know, when we have good news to share, we're so excited to share it. We're, we're, we're ready. We want to share it. And Paul encourages the church to have that kind of readiness to announce the gospel of peace, not just peace between me and God, but peace between me and you. Remember, Paul, Paul wrote this letter from prison, chained to a Roman centurion. And I, I, I think it's amazing in verses 19 and 20 of Ephesians 6, when Paul asked the church to pray for him, he asked him not that he would be free from prison, because that would be my request. If I'm ever taken away to prison one day and y'all were to receive a letter from me, that would be my request to you. Pray that I get out of here. But that's not Paul's request. Not that he would be free from prison, but that he would be free to announce the good news of the gospel. You know that centurion that he was, a chain to, that he was chained to had to become a Christian, right? I mean, can you imagine being chained to Paul? Prison. For Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, it's the gospel of peace. It's not the gospel of love. It's not the gospel of joy. It's not the gospel of glory. Although the gospel is all of those things. But for the church to be made up of Jewish and Gentile Christians together. For there not to be a Jewish Christian church on one side of town and a Gentile Christian church on the other side of town. It has to be a gospel of peace. Paul concludes his letter in verse 23 with this prayer. Peace be to the whole community. It's a prayer for peace. Prayers needed. 
We know from observation and experience that peace has not yet been fully accomplished. And that's because there's a dragon who wants nothing more than to rebuild walls of hostility between the people of God to enforce them. There's a dragon behind the scenes who wants nothing more than the people of God to play hurt potato for the rest of our lives until the time runs out. There's a dragon who wants to wreak havoc on the people of God through division and disunity. Paul's message to the church is clear. Without peace, there is no unity. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that peace is always a possibility. Peace affected, peace arrived, peace achieved, peace announced. Let's pray together. Father, as we conclude this study, we pray for peace. We gather together, united as one. We acknowledge that we live in a time of division and disunity. We acknowledge, Lord, so much work. There's so much work to be done. We sang that beautiful song about the vision. Of every tribe, of every tongue, every nation, together as one. And we look around and we just see division, see disunity. So, Father, we pray. We pray for the good news of peace. We pray for the peace that comes through the grace of the gospel, that it will have a great effect on our church, in our community, in our nation, in our families, in our relationships. Lord, as much effect that sin has had in all of those to create such hostile and divisive environments, may the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ affect peace. Lord, may we, may we live as Jesus lived. On that day that we celebrate this time of year, peace arrived. He's a prince of peace. He's a person of peace. And as followers of his, may we live as people of peace. And Father, that peace that was achieved on the cross, 
We pray as the church announces that peace that not only will people who don't know the peace that comes from knowing you, that that peace will come to them, and Father, also that peace between relationships will come, both. That as people come to know you, they'll come to know peace with God and peace with their fellow man. And so that is our prayer together, arm in arm, linked together as one this morning. That is our prayer this Christmas. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.